Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. intended through the prayerful discernment and the movement of the Holy Spirit for this worship series to serve as a liturgical pause, a breath, a chance for us to kind of look at some fun and interesting stories from the scripture and to be inspired by them, but not to have to engage in the kind of spiritual depth of the coming season of Lent. I love Lent. It is one of my top two liturgical seasons of the year, and Lent is a perfect time for us to really do some of the hard work of being a disciple, to get down with introspection, deep down into who we are, and like a flower that blooms in the spring, allow ourselves to be opened to the transformation that God is bringing us through the grace of Jesus Christ. But that is heavy hard work and it culminates in the annual reminder that because of our sinfulness Christ died on the cross for us and then of course it is transformed into the joy of Easter which I also adore more than any other Sunday of the year but in this pause between all of the hustle and the bustle and the work and the sustained strain of a pandemic that we experienced in Advent and Christmas and then finishing in Epiphany, my hope had been that this would be a fun-filled Sunday. And then this week happened. My life was shaken to the core once more as I watched our Capitol on Wednesday as this city, this kind of holy city of Americana, was a place of hatred and violence, pain and indeed death. When I watched the seat of democracy in Onslaught, I have grown up in Northern Virginia and so that is a place that I have been to many times and that is a place where I have always gone and had a moment of reflection that because of the Capitol and the work that my fellow citizens do there, I have the ability to enjoy my religion and my faith as I do here today. And to see what happened on Wednesday was shocking and abhorrent. And it devastated me as it continued into Thursday as the death toll rose. And all of that just left me in a place of darkness and even further depression. And then on Friday, I gathered with the family of one of our beloved saints here at our church. And we commended to God our servant who had lived 94 incredible years in this earth and certainly blessed us here at Crozet. And then on Saturday, we celebrated the life of one of our 20-year-old church members who had died in a tragic medical accident. And because of this, the death and the destruction and the suffering of the pandemic were all so real. And as I went home last night, I sat down and thought, I have to rework what I was doing. I have to find something. How do I take a story about seeing God's backside and make sense of what is going on in our life? So in order to do that, I had to do what all of us have to do at some point in our life. You just have to go back to the Bible. you got to go back to the text and figure out where we are. 
And so this is a weird story. It's a strange story where Moses is having this intimate, personal conversation with God and is working his way up to what he wants. You know, have you ever had to do that? There, there's a, a known methodology that people will say that if you really want to ask for something and it might make somebody upset or hurt their feelings or cause anxiety, that what you really should do is you should lead with a compliment and then you get to the hard part, right? So people, you know, kind of butter them up. My son has perfected this innately. He consistently comes up to wherever I am, and he'll say something like, oh, mom, you're looking really nice today. I like that outfit. And my immediate response is, thank you. What do you want? Because he doesn't usually do that unless there's something else coming, right? You wait for that. And he has learned that there are ways to pave the way for what you want. And Moses is kind of doing that. But he's also being very authentic and vulnerable with God. And that's recorded here in what is the most ancient part of our Bible, the Torah, the first five books. And sometimes we think, you know, Exodus is just the story of the people leaving their bondage in Egypt. And maybe if we've read enough or been around the church long enough, we know that they do get to Mount Sinai and then we have the covenant there, what we call the Mosaic Covenant. But that's really just the beginning of Exodus. Exodus is a long book. I mean, here we are in chapter 33, and there's still three more chapters to go, 36 chapters in a book. And oftentimes we limit ourselves to thinking that, oh, if we would just watch the Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston would completely explain the book to us, and we're good. It is not biblically accurate and not going to be of much help, although it is very amusing, and I highly commend it to you. However, Let's talk about what's really here that in the midst of we get this weird story. This is a book that records for us that not only did the people cry out and were heard under the mantle of their slavery in Egypt where they endeavored under incredible abuse mentally, emotionally, and indeed physically from their overseers, the Egyptians, for 400 years they suffered at their hands. And when they cried out, God heard them, received their prayers and their cries. And God said, I will save you. And then God sent this murderer who was on the, the run, on the lamb from justice in Egypt, had gone out to Midian and was trying to live there and restart his life. God says to him, you, Moses, I will send you to save my people. And there's wrestling there that a lot of us can remember feeling as we have been asked to step up and into positions within the body of Christ. Certainly clergy understand that. And ultimately, Moses goes and does what he's told to do. He manages to bring hundreds of thousands of Israelites out of bondage and bring them to the place where God said, on this mountain where I am speaking to you from the burning bush, here you will bring my people and they will worship. And then they get this covenant, this incredible covenant that is marked by the words, I will be your God and you will be my people. And they get the law and they get these incredible experiences, most of which involve the people being stiff-necked and uh, very nostalgic to the point that they're like, yeah, you know, it was 400 years of back-breaking bondage and slavery, but at least we had cucumbers and meat. And their nostalgia is met by God going, oh, okay, yeah, um, that's not what we're going for here. Uh, this is bigger than your dinner menu. And so eventually what ends up happening is God's like, we are going to need an extended timeout. We're going to do like 40 years 
40 years in the wilderness. And they're plotting through that and how God gives them the intricate details on how to build a mobile tent ministry known as the tabernacle. And it tells us that in, in incredible detail, not just once but twice in the book of Exodus. And then we get to the point where Moses and the people are on their journey which will continue through Leviticus and Numbers and culminate in their arrival on the verge of entering into the Promised Land in the book of Deuteronomy. So all of these things are at place here in Exodus. And Moses has reached the point where he says to God, you know, in this conversation they're having, God, you know, I, I have done what you have asked me to do. You told me to bring up this people, but you haven't told me the next steps. What's happening now? Where do we go? How do I get them from here into the promised land? How do I do that? Because you told me that you know me. You told me that I have favor in your sight. So if that's true, show me your ways. Tell me what it is that you want me to do. Help me so that I will know, I will know that you know me and that I do have your favor. It will be proof of that. And in a very incredible mode of leadership, he reminds God to also think of God's people. Think of them. You, and God says, I do. My presence will go with you. I'm not sending another person with you. I myself am going to go with you. My presence will lead you not only through 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, but my presence will lead you into the promised land. And there my people will find their sanctuary and their rest. And there we will be as we are called to be together. And Moses hears this and says, show me your glory. Show it to me. I want to see you. I want to see you face to face. He's asking for an incredible gift to see God's face. He's actually asking for something that the angels in heaven don't even have. All the glimpses that we get of the angels in heaven from the prophet Isaiah in the book of Isaiah and from the book of Revelation, those visions that happen in the heavenly theater, have the angels with a second set of wings covering their face. Because it is, as God says here in the book of Exodus, my glory is so great that no one can look upon me and live. And that's disheartening. Moses has finally built up to what he wanted. I want to see you. I want to see you. I don't want to just see a burning bush and hear your voice. I don't want to just see the cloud descend on the mountain. I don't want to just see a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. I want to see you. I want to peel back the curtain of the tabernacle and look not just into the Holy of Holies, but look at the holiest of holy. I want to see you. And God says, you can't. You won't survive if you look upon me. But because God does know Moses, because God does actually hear us when we call out, God hears the yearnings not only that are expressed in our words and, and through the wordless prayers of our minds, but God knows what is in our heart. God sees to the depths of what Moses is asking for in reality. Moses is asking for the most intimate kind of connection to see and be seen, to know and to be known on that level with no barrier, neither the, the curtain and the tabernacle and no wall of human sin. Moses wants to be 
face to face with this God that has been with him through plagues and trials and tribulations, this God that has been with him through verbal assaults and threats of violence from the very same people that Moses is called to live, that God Moses wants to see. And when God says, you cannot, not right now, not in this form, I can only imagine the disappointment. It's like all of us are once more to that child that has asked for something and didn't get it. And Moses, the child of God, has asked God for something and is told, you can't. But God, in an effort to show Moses that God does receive us, says, but I will show you what you can see. And as I illustrated with the children, God says, I am going to pass by you. And so the what you can see and live is my backside. You can see all of this, which is not exactly what we want to hear from God. God, I want to see your face. Well, how about this? That is not where we want to go. But it shows us that God is listening. And what we actually find is that when we continue to search the scriptures and study God's word, we find that God is actually working up to the point on the day when we can see God face to face. Because later on in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul tells us that one of the gifts that is now possible because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and because of Christ's willingness to return and give us a glimpse into resurrection is that on that day of resurrection, when Christ returns and all of us are raised from the dead, we are not raised in these bodies, but we will get a new spiritual form of this body, a body that has physicality, but a body that will never age that will never depreciate, that will never decay. It will be impervious to pain and sorrow. It will never again sin or die. And that body will allow us to not just look upon God's face and to be seen face to face by our God, but it will allow us to live for all eternity, feasting at God's table, allowing us to exist in the kingdom to come, an incredible place where all of our struggles and our suffering here will be but a memory. They will no longer inflict mental anguish and physical pain upon us. They will no longer eat away at our spirits until we feel dark and depressed. They will, allow, they will have just been completely moved aside. And this entire new existence for all eternity is unadulterated access to God. And that is a response to exactly what Moses has been asking for. I want to see you. Hasn't every Christian at some point yearned for that? Sometimes we kind of settle a little lower. You know, I wish I could just have the burning bush experience. I, I wish I could just hear the voice of God calling as God does to the prophets. I, I wish I could have some kind of experience like so many people do in all four gospel accounts where they get to be in the presence of Jesus. And God says, I'm going to give you all of that and so much more. The day will come when you get that. And as Moses is struggling with that, and God does this kind of strange reversal, hide-and-seek kind of thing, and Moses gets to glimpse just a piece, just enough to show him that more is coming, to give him some tangible hope, the story ends. It stops right there when we move on in chapter 34 to something entirely different. And you might be saying to yourself, why is that in there? 
Really? There's a story where Moses is like, show me your glory, and you get to see God's backside. That is not how I would write a piece of scripture. That's not how most people would write a piece of scripture. But there's something there. That's why it's been preserved. There is something in this story. And what is truly there is this sense of hope. Sometimes the best hope to which we cling is that someone has heard us, that someone knows us, that someone is working alongside us, someone is working for us, someone is not abandoning us. And one of the biggest lessons that is often overlooked in the book of Exodus is that not once but twice God tells God's people how they are going to survive their wilderness experience. You will only survive if you put me at the very center, building this tabernacle. And when we move, the first thing you set up is this tabernacle where I dwell in your midst. And then you put your house around mine. God is reminding us that the only way we are going to truly survive in this world, be fruitful and effective as disciples of Jesus Christ, is when we put God in the center and build outward around God. But we are in a difficult place as American Christians because we are often struggling with what is expected of us from our national culture, from our political culture, from our culture in, in society. But God is saying, I have taken a people who were strangers in a strange land. I have taken a people who were stiff-necked and hearts hardened. I have taken a people who are not perfect and continually are looking and coveting the culture of others. And I am giving them the key to success. I am telling them that if they place me first and central in their hearts, in their minds, in their words, in their actions, in their homes, in their community, in their world, that we can do what nobody thought was possible. That a contingent of refugees that were enslaved for 400 years in a foreign country by a people that are not their own, are going to come out, they're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years and raise an entirely new generation, and then they're going to enter into the promised land, and there they will settle, and there they will give rise to the monarchy of King David, and there the seeds that will bloom one day into the Savior of the world will come from those people. When they put God at the center, yes. And sometimes we think that the golden age of God, oh, maybe it ends in the scriptures. Maybe it's over. The scriptures are but the beginning. While this, the canon is closed, the story lives on. And oftentimes we don't think. It's not just clergy that are ministers of the word. It's not just me that are writing new chapters and entering in new verses into the global canon of Christendom. It is you. You speak gospel. You choose to love and to live your life with Christ at the center or not. You choose to show not only your family and your friends, but the world that you are known and have found favor in God's eyes or you don't. But we do this not because we are privileged and we are better than other people. We do this because the gospel is all are known 
the angels sang that day when Christ was born. Peace among those whom he favors. The peace is for all of humankind. The favor, the blessings, the graciousness, the mercy that God promises is for all of us. But people won't know if we don't share it. People won't believe it if they can't catch a glimpse, even just the backside of that glimpse. But when I got up this morning and I was wrestling once more with what today would look like in worship, I went down to where I keep my shoes and I was looking for the right shoes to wear. And that might strike you as uh, either a difficult or a very easy task, depending on if you've seen all my shoes. But today I settled on my riding boots. These I call my itinerant boots. And that's because there is a tradition in Methodism that in the very beginning when Methodism as a movement that began in Oxford, England, entered here into what were the American colonies before the start of this nation formally. There were clergy that traveled between churches. They weren't at one single congregation shepherding as I am, but they would travel between and they used the mode of transportation in their day, which was horseback. And so they wore riding boots and they traveled between multiple congregations, sharing the ministry of the word, sharing pastoral visitation, sharing the gifts of the spirit that was endowed in each of them and continuing to do so until Methodism would grow into a denomination that could support enough clergy for every congregation. And in that, sometimes we think to ourselves, well, that was a thing of the past. But Methodist clergy continue to be itinerant. Every year comes the possibility that we could be moved. I myself had served a congregation in Norfolk for eight years. I began and ended my candidacy journey to ordination with that church. They sponsored me, and they saw me preach my first Sunday as an ordained elder when I could first wear a stole. And that congregation is where I gave birth to my child. That congregation is where I truly started to find my voice and my passion for worship, leading it, creating it. That congregation gave me so many gifts that I couldn't fathom changing. I couldn't even consider what life might be like if I moved. But we are the descendants of an itinerant people. In God's mysterious and mighty ways, God intended for the Israelites, for God's people to be itinerant, not just for 40 years, but that it would continue, that they would discover new living in diaspora when the Assyrians came and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, that the southern kingdom would have its taste as well when the Babylonians conquered them and took some of them into exile into Babylon. And then years later, after the Persian Empire and in the midst of the Greco-Roman one, when Rome finally destroyed the second temple, the people moved into permanent diaspora and exile. And they have been moving all over the world since then. Those people have continued to struggle with what it is to be a follower of God, known and favored, in the midst of a world that doesn't understand or truly comprehend who they are. And we are their descendants. For our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was born a Jew and practiced Judaism. And so did those first apostles until later they had become so central in Christ that they could no longer be called Jews. 
But the God that we serve alongside our siblings in Judaism is the same God that we serve along our siblings in Islam. And God is so great and so mighty that it took three Abrahamic faiths to encompass that God and shed goodness on the world. It's an incredible gift that we have. But we are descended from a spiritual people who are itinerant. They change, they move, they transform. And we had to be willing to do it back then, and are we willing to do it now? And I remember when the bishop said to me, I'm ready to move you now. And I didn't want to go. I didn't want to leave my people. I didn't want to go to a new place that I had never been and live with a people that I had never known. But I came here. And my very first Sunday, this church placed on me this stole that others like me, itinerant clergy, have worn and that others after me will wear because God calls us to be willing to go and do new things, experience new people, and allow ourselves to be remade. And if I have learned anything, it's that coming here has made me a better pastor. It has made me a better person. It has given me experiences and relationships and life lessons that I would never have had if I had stayed where I was comfortable, safe, and secure in Norfolk. And because of that, because I had responded, although I will admit the bishop didn't exactly give me a choice, because I was willing to go, it's amazing what God brought me to. It's amazing to whom I was brought. Because of what we do when we are willing to follow God and to change, keeping God at the center of every step, of every move, of every decision, of everything we say, life changes for the better. I have long said that God always calls the right people, but it's our decision if we choose to show up and be the right person. That is the call that is given to us today. From the annals of Methodism to the annals of the Old Testament, we are a people who are being invited to step into a new day, keeping God at the center. And that is not an easy thing to do because we are surrounded by so many witnesses of other ways, of other voices. We are surrounded by a world that is suffering, not just from a pandemic, but from political strife. We are in the midst of a time of unparalleled shift and change. And we are being given the opportunity, like Moses, to remember that we are known and favored, but not favored so that we will be comfortable while everyone else is discomforted, but instead that we might share that gift with others. God spoke to Moses so that he would bring the people to God on the mountain and give all of them a covenant, a formal relationship. We are the next in the long line of those who have been given a covenant, a new covenant by water, blood, and the spirit of Jesus Christ. We are a people who have been given the opportunity to use not just our words, but God's, to preach the good news, to share this knowledge 
this relationship with our God. And today is the day when God says, my promise to Moses was just as true for you. While the prophet Isaiah and John of Patmos, who wrote the book of Revelation, got to glimpse that even in heaven, there is a barrier between the angels and God. We are those people who are testifying to the world now that one day, all of these barriers, the weakness of our physical vessel, the weakness that brings forth human sin, words of hatred, acts of violence, and the destruction and death of other beloved children of God, that those things will cease. But they will continue if each disciple does not make decisions now about how we talk, how we relate to one another, how we engage in relationship, how we deal with division, if we don't choose to put God at the center. And I think the greatest lesson that I have ever been taught by being a part of any body of Christ is that this is not a way of power and privilege. This is a way of humility and service. Because Christ said to his disciples on the eve of his betrayal, the greatest among you will be slave to all. We are here in this world to serve. And some of us find the place that we serve in ministry or in mission. But every single person is called to serve in acts of love and relationship. For we serve a God who chooses not just to know us, but to allow God's self to be known by us. And our duty, our sacred commandment from God, is to share that relationship with others so that they too may have that relationship with our God. May we find that strength, that courage, that grounding in our God to do that. A God who has revealed to us countless times, my love for you is greater than your failures. My love for you is greater than your sin. And my forgiveness can overcome all of your past, your present, and anything that you will do in the future. That kind of radical love is what this world needs right now. To find a path forward into a bright and beautiful future where we will not only see one another face to face, but we will see God face to face. And don't you want to join me and others in a place where there will no longer be sin, sickness, sorrow, and death. May we do our part to lay the foundation this day and every day thereafter as disciples of our Lord and Savior, our gracious Messiah, our good and great God. May it be so. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.